Hello and welcome to another Tucson edition of the Low Key Podcast. Episode 28. This episode is sponsored by Justin's. Justin's creates a nut butter that's organic, rich, and creamy with flavors like honey, hazelnut, vanilla, and chocolate. If you have a sweet tooth, try their peanut butter cups, which come in white chocolate and dark chocolate. So check out Justin's and get a tasty treat. Now, without further ado, Borderlands Brewing Company with Adam Ledford. It's nice. It's easy. It's Tucson. Let's get started. Hey guys, and welcome to another episode of Low Key. I am here with Adam Ledford from Borderlands Brewing. How you doing, man? Doing well. How's it going? Good. Um, before we go into all these tasty treats of beers we have, <laughs> can you tell us a little bit of what Borderland about a little bit about Borderlands and um, why Mike and um, Miles. Your, Miles why they why they called it Borderlands. Oh, absolutely. So um, geographically, uh, Tucson, pretty close uh, to the border of Mexico. And um, foundationally, you know, Tucson was kind of this, uh, almost a desert oasis, literally a desert oasis. Yeah. And uh, just uh, the proximity being so close, um, there's a lot of cultural ties, you know, the wild, wild west feel that's still preserved here. Uh, we just felt like it for a lot of reasons. Uh felt like we were on the border of civilization for, uh, yeah. you know, so culturally, geographically, all those things kind of tied into that, that name, and it, and it just felt right when they were getting things started. It's mm. awesome. So what is, what is the journey of them kind of starting Borderlands from the idea of it to, to what it is now? Um, it, uh, kind of interestingly enough, um, so Mike and Miles were both, uh, science background. Uh, Mike is a PhD microbiologist, uh, went to Loyola, uh, for his PhD and his postdoc in here at the University of Arizona. And Miles is a third year, uh, family practice medical resident. He was in med school at the time. Mm -hmm. They, uh, were on a kickball league together and kind of became buddies, uh, had always talked about doing some homebrewing. And so they got together and started homebrewing. And pretty shortly after getting into that and really having finding a passion for that and really enjoying the crafting of the beers, mm. uh, they really started thinking about it. And they're like, you know, Tucson is just prime for more craft breweries. There were only three craft breweries in the in the whole city five years ago. Wow. And now this year uh, there are 16 active and four more in development wow. with more to come. That's crazy and friends to start up capital to create the brewery um, and now you see that all over the place but at that time it was pretty novel so we uh, it's Borderlands has probably a hundred investor owners wow. but all of them are in at around a thousand bucks for the most part now of course there are some angel investors that were yeah. critical and we've had some folks uh, you know who did some strategic cash infusions along the way to get us over some of those pain points uh, but really it was a almost a community-sourced brewery right from the very beginning, uh, which has always felt good, and it's always been part of the fit and feel of the, the Borderlands legacy. Hmm. So they, uh, they scratched together that capital and bought a, a pilot system, and then uh, quickly were able to uh, invest in a three-barrel system, uh, a barrel, of course, being about 31 gallons. Wow. And so three barrels, they're making less than 100 gallons of beer at a time. Uh, but, you know, that's enough to fill a few kegs and get the tap room rolling and uh, get on a few accounts here around town. Yeah. Uh, you know, when you have a new beer, the craft beer bars uh, were starting to become a thing uh, in like 2013, 2014. So they were kind of picking up some of our beers and, and sharing them. And so hmm. it was enough to get going. Um, and that was uh, that was probably the first three years of the business uh, yeah. was on that three barrel system. When we developed the recipe for Noche Dulce, uh, which is our uh, Moonlight Vanilla Porter. Basically, it's a, a, a nice, robust porter made with Mexican vanilla. Um, and that is in your flight over there at the yeah. end of the that first one? board. Um, 
So the idea behind that beer uh, was to have some really cool local sourcing available, mm. get some Mexican vanilla, get some really, you know, cool, like, smallest radius of distribution possible. And that beer absolutely blew up. And yeah. so that was, uh, it caught, like, on wildfire. Uh, we took it to a festival. It did extremely well there. got favorable press, started winning some awards. And that was the beer that effectively built Borderlands. You know, yeah. before then, we were doing fine, and they were making some interesting you know, kind of novel beers, but nothing that really took hold as far as, like, people identifying Borderlands with a beer. Huh. And then Noche Dulce just just was that one. And so, uh, very smartly, uh, they took that time to uh, upgrade our brew house. And now behind you, you'll see, instead of a three-barrel system, a, a very nice, large, uh, premier 20-barrel uh, system. Wow. And so, going from less than 100 gallons to over 600 gallons of production... Uh, really changed us into the modern production brewery that we are now. Yeah. Um, the other interesting thing, uh, after Noche kind of caught on, uh, that was when we also made the decision to move into cans as packaging. And so developing artwork and labels and getting those 16-ounce cans ready to go uh, mm -hmm. was really good for us. Uh, we were able to distribute across the state in ways that's not really feasible on yeah. draft. And so that was a, a, a major step in kind of the evolution of Borderlands as well. In early 2015, uh, things were going so well, uh, and Mike and Miles were sitting there thinking, okay, how do I finish up med school? How do I finish up my residency? Yeah. Uh, that's what Miles is thinking. Mike is thinking, how do I actually manage my microbiology uh, career and, and advance my, you know, write grants, do papers, do effective research? Um, how do we do those things and actually mm -hmm. run a successful brewery now instead of a brewery that was just kind of, you know, not limping along, but, you know, moving at a nice slow pace and all of a sudden we're exploding. And uh, <laughs> very, very fortunately uh, for myself, uh, my wife and I moved here from North Carolina. Uh, I was cool. the GM of a brewery tap room back there for a brewery called Mystery Brewing Company. Wow. And uh, my wife had a job opportunity that was too good to pass up at U of A. So we moved out here with the thought that my skills were fairly shelf stable and, you know, I was going to look and invest in the community, build a network, and potentially we were going to start our own brewery. Uh, in talking with Mike and Miles almost immediately, we just felt like yeah. this was a, a, a nice, sympathetic relationship. We really got along well with each other, and uh, I had the, the tools in my tool belt that they were desperately needing. And, and, and even more importantly, I had the time yeah. to be able to be here and, uh, and facilitate our success in a way that uh, was just driving them bonkers. <laughs> so we uh, we joined forces kind of unofficially in 2015, and then at the beginning of 2016, um, I uh, assumed the role of general manager uh, for the brewery, and now we kind of work it out where each of us has our own bucket, of course, uh, where yeah. Miles does more of the uh, strategic initiative and uh, investor relations. Mike does a lot of the admin day-to-day, -day, like things that aren't necessarily tied to a time clock so he can work around his wild schedule. And uh, I try to do most of the event planning, customer facing. And then we all we all take a, a, a hand in the strategic like recipe development and the production schedule. Um, we hired a pro brewer at the beginning of 2016, wow. uh, a guy named Landon Swanson. Uh, he's uh, just a veteran brewer. Uh, they owned a a small brew pub up in South Dakota in the Black Hills, and uh, it was called Bitter Esters, which is just the, the best name for a brew pub of all time. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, he and his now wife uh, owned and operated that place for about five years. Um, wow. And so he has con uh, experience brewing on a 30-barrel system when they would contract for peak season with their most popular offerings. He was in there brewing every day on a seven-barrel system, managing a restaurant, running the staff, paying the bills, doing the accounting, uh, and we just we got so lucky. He uh, he and Erica, his wife, wanted to move back to Tucson because they had family in the area, so we were we were in a position where it was time to hire a new head brewer, and we snapped him up before anybody knew he was even coming, and it's just <laughs> been a game changer for us ever since. That's awesome. What, what is unique about your beer, and why is it so relevant right now? Uh, I think, really, really we satisfy two unique niches. Uh, Tucson is a town that really appreciates uh, a, a commitment to local sourcing and high quality, and so yeah. 
the, the culture and the sense of place that Tucson has being a uh, UNESCO World Food Destination, uh, we got that appellation uh, early last year. Uh, in addition to being like a really tight-knit community of local businesses and, uh, and this kind of real entrepreneurial spirit, um, being somebody who works with other businesses in the, in the area uh, for a lot of our ingredients, uh, certainly is something that resonates with a lot of people. So uh, that lovely ruby red clear oh. beer over there, that's our prickly pear wheat. Um, and that beer, that's the one. <laughs> and so uh, that beer uh, has prickly pear juice that's harvested 100% in the Tucson, in Tucson and Marana area, a small wow. community. And, uh, you know, organic, locally sourced. They, uh, we have a specific lot that we look for from them. They cold press it and uh, they press it to juice. Um, it is pasteurized, so it has a longer shelf life and they keep it for us. So we always have the same consistency product. Wow. But it's really cool because it's not only a Borderlands beer, it's a Borderlands beer in partnership with Sherry's Bountiful Harvest. That's really cool. Yeah, and so, and, and you know, the main thing is it's delicious, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's delicious as I'm drinking it right now. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's, it's funny, but with prickly pear, most people have never tried prickly pear. They've tried 1% prickly pear and 99% sugar. Okay. You know, then grandma's prickly pear jam. Yeah. You know? <laughs> um, so when people actually smell that those bright, like citrusy, hibiscus, floral notes, and they taste it, and it's kind of like, oh, this is, this is lovely. This is sublime, you know. <laughs> and uh, and you know, and it, it imparts that beautiful color to it. So uh, you know, it's it's a beer we're really proud of, and it's a beer that we're proud of, especially because it has those local ties. Mm. We work also with uh, Yellow Brick Coffee which is a really cool single origin. Like hmm. they, they do their groundwork. Like uh, one of their, uh, their owner is in Kenya right now wow. checking on their sourcing to make, to make sure that everything's good and that the families who provide them with their beans are being well taken care of. That take is care awesome. Of. It's, it's awesome. I mean, they, their commitment is unbelievable. And so we love working with them. We've done uh, several coffee infused beers uh, and it's, we don't, we don't talk about where we're getting our coffee. We just ask Yellow Brick what we can get in a certain time window. Yeah. You know, um, we, uh, we have a few beers that uh, we do uh, different treatments. Uh, the German chocolate noche. Oh, uh, so good. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, so, so our noche dulce, like I was telling you, is the beer that took off. Uh, last year, we went to a festival, and uh, it was the Real Wild and Woody Festival. And so they focus on spontaneous fermentation, barrel aging, and you know, unique like cask ale, so real ale. Okay. And um, Landon uh, at this point was uh, you know getting the ropes of the system, had everything pretty well dialed in, and it was time to do a little experimentation. And so uh, he set up a cask, and he's like, you know, guys, I'm just gonna do I'm gonna do German chocolate cake beer. It's gonna be great. You can trust me. Yeah. yeah we'll, well, you know, we'll all try it for the first time, but uh, but like it's gonna be fun. It's gonna be fun. We'll see. And it was just this very, you know, casual thing, him just kind of putting his creative juices to the test as a one-off batch. Mm. And it just took off at that festival. I mean, we, we tapped it out. Like, we had a special timing for the tap. Yeah. We had a line that was going through the building. And we're talking Jeez. about, you know, m several hundred vendors there. And we, we felt like the bell of the ball, right? <laughs> because we just had this crazy line. And... Um, People loved it. Uh, a a Phoenix-based uh, beer blogger took the time to write up what she considered to be the 20 best beers of the festival, really in-depth, like company history, here's a lot about the beer, just really went mm. through it page by page. And uh, I saw the article on Facebook, and uh, it was like, congratulations, Borderlands Brewing, nice job, and, and you know, a couple <laughs> other Tucson-based breweries. And I was like, what's this? And I started scrolling through 20 best beers, and it's and it's in order, right? Counting down from 20. Mm -hmm. So I'm uh, I like look in at 20, 19, 18. Oh, those are good beers. I'm like, hey, we're, we, if we're on this list, this is nice. So it's like we're legitimately like in the pack here. It's not like, you know, the the, the gimme spot on 20. Be like, oh, Borderlands is good too, you know? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so um, I'm going through and I get up to, you know, like 13, 12, 11. And I'm like man, I was like, if we got a top 10 beer, this is pretty amazing. Like, yeah. this is cool. You know, pe people said they like it, but, you know, what people say in a festival might not necessarily reflect the marketplace, but sure, okay. Clicking through, and I'm getting down to, like, five, and I'm, y'all, I'm getting nervous at this point. I'm reading this article, <laughs> and I'm just like, I was like, oh, I was like, I've 
man, we're top five. This is this is incredible. How high can we go? And then I'm getting to like number two, and we're not number two. And I'm like, if someone is screwing with us and we are not on this list, I'm gonna break my computer in half because I'm so invested at this point. I'm just, I'm dying to know. Click it, and there we are, number one spot. Wow. German chocolate, noche dulce. And uh, the quote that I will carry with me in my brain to the grave is, she said, not only is this hands down the best beer of the festival, it may be the best beer that I've ever tasted in my life. Wow. And uh, That's what you want. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> you, yeah you, I mean, you can't buy press like that. And, um, and so pretty quickly after that, we had just a little bit left uh, that we hadn't taken to the festival, like one keg. And so we took that back and, you know, had a big party and said, like, come out and try this beer that was so, you know, well-received and favorably, favorably reviewed. Uh, I mean, crazy. Uh, you're familiar with the uh, Untapped app, of course. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I've seen it around. So uh, in the rating system, it, there's, no, there's no defined categorical way to score. Everybody, like, people can go... I like Bud Light. It's my favorite beer. Five stars every time. Yeah. You know, whereas somebody else might give that beer a half star. You know, and so there's there's no it's 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 completely subjective, but you do see trends. Uh, you see beers that are hyped tend to be a little bit higher, but in general, uh, you know, if you are in the high threes, like three point seven five and up, you know, you've got a quality beer that most people will enjoy. Mm. Um, you have some beers, like the top-rated beers up there are going to be like in the 4.7s, the 4.8s. Four and this beer right off the bat was carrying like above a 4.5 average. Wow. Like it was the highest-rated beer in Tucson. And we were like, what is going on? So we released the beer in the tap room. We have a party, and we're like, okay, 10-ounce pours. It's happening right at 6. And then at like 6.32, it was gone. Oh, And geez. it was done. And we were like... <laughs> Uh, okay, um, yeah. this beer is too good, and we're out of it, and what are we going to do about that? Mm-hmm. So we put our heads together, and, and very quickly we decided that this was something that we were going to bring to market in a real way. And so we did a batch, and then we did another batch. And we're like, okay, this batch will carry us through. You know, this is, at this point, we're talking like late August, early September, and we're like, this is going to be our late fall seasonal. And then in October, we were like, okay, maybe we should push this out to winter seasonal. This is going to be our winter seasonal. You know, the, the first couple of runs have sold really well. All of a sudden it started getting traction. Like people were asking for it in accounts and every batch we made between October and yesterday uh, here in January was going to be our last batch. We're like, okay, we did another 10 barrels. This is good. This is, this is going to get us through. This is going to get us through January 21st. That's our big anniversary party. It'll be great. And then that would sell out in three days. And so then we're like, okay, um, I guess let's let's do another 10 barrels. And so we would do another 10 barrels. And then the distributor started to, to get traction too. And the distributor called and he's like, hey, we'll we'll take everything that you have. And we're like, no, how many kegs? And they're like, no, we, we will take everything that you have. Wow. This beer has legs. And, and it was the first time we've really experienced as a brewery having a, a hype beer you know and it, it's awesome. uh, it's so weird feeling because it's a delicious beer you've tried it it's yeah. it's yummy yeah but oh yeah it's you, so yummy you never know what is gonna click and gonna be that thing where everybody wants it and so we feel super fortunate um we 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 ran we are fully running it as a seasonal but we put an end date on it um because we figured this first year with it being so popular and everybody loving it we did a bottle release um we uh hand bottled here a little over 200 bottles and did an online sale and the online sale sold out in 26 minutes and (laughs) it's unreal unreal i mean yeah and, and so like you know we're sitting here you know we're we're professional brewers. We're yeah. running a business. We're making it happen. But when something like this happens, it feels like, you know, we're just, you know, playing in a sandbox somehow. And somebody's like dumped in like a truckload of Legos and they go, make make something amazing. Yeah. So I kind of blended. Uh, I told you there were two reasons why uh, we kind of stand out as a brewery and what makes us unique and awesome. Um, and so that local sourcing is a big part of it. Yeah. Um, and so I told the story about German Chocolate Noche because we worked with the Maya Tea Company uh, to source some cocoa nibs that they did like a praline pecan mm-hmm. treatment. That sounds so, fantastic. So, I mean, well, you're tasting the end yeah, result. Yeah. <laughs> it's super good. Um, 
But uh, so those cocoa nibs and sweetened coconut were what went in there. And so we were happy to, again, work with another local business in creating a beer that everybody can feel good about. Uh, but that leads us right into the second reason why right now I think uh, the star of Borderlands is on the rise. And that's because we are dabbling in the waters of beer infusions. And so we are we're making candy bar stout, you know? I mean, like, it's, yeah. it's the name of it isn't candy bar stout, but as a rule, you know, if you look at really, really highly sought after beers right now, um, they have some sort of vanilla and chocolate mm -hmm. kind of thing going on. And, uh, and that's what people are wanting right now. You know, they're wanting crazy sours. They're wanting the big barrel-aged bombs again, which is super exciting. Um, and they're wanting adjuncts. You know, they're wanting candy bar, desserty kind of stuff. And so we're filling that niche right now. And in fact, all the infusions that we've messed around with lately uh, have really gone over well. Uh, one beer that um, you'll get to try in a little while is called uh, Citrana, and it's uh, the other beer that we can and distribute across the state, and it's a uh, Goza. Uh, we call it Southwestern-style Goza. Okay. It's a uh, traditional German sour. Uh, I mean, it's been around for hundreds that, of years. Is that this one? Uh, we don't have that one on, okay. the, on the board right okay. now, but I'll make sure to get you a sample. Yeah. Um, so it's, uh, it's got sea salt, it's got coriander Ooh. in the very traditional sense. Yeah, uh, so in, uh, in Leipzig, Germany, uh, flowing uh, along the banks of the Goza River, uh, the Goza River was so close to the sea that it actually becomes, you know, I'm making air quotes here, contaminated <laughs> with uh, seawater. But really what that means is that just a little bit of uh, salinity naturally mm. uh, is found in the Goza River. And so when they were using that as their water source to make this beer several hundred years ago, you got this really interesting salinity in the finished product. You know, very light, but definitely there. When other people tried to recreate that style across Germany and in parts of Europe, they weren't really achieving that same kind of taste. And finally, bing, you know, light bulb over the head, and they're like, ah, sea salt. It needs sea salt because that's where they got the water from. Wow. And so we honor that tradition, and we use sea salt. Uh, it's a German beer, so you knew they were going to put coriander in it at some point. <laughs> um, we take it a step further. We use cardamom, and uh, mm -hmm. it gives just this really beautiful kind of fruit and spice aroma on there. Mm -hmm. And um, it's, a, it's a lovely beer, uh, and it sells very well for us, especially in the warm months. It, it you know, pairs best with sunshine as our marketing around that. Um, poolside beer really works well. We launched it in cans in August, uh, late August. And uh, I've seen some tremendous success with that. And we wow. anticipate that sales will really pick up uh, as soon as we get into like March, April and it starts heating up here in Tucson. Um, we did an infusion of that beer. We did a holiday spice version. And so we use cranberry and we use bitter orange peel. Wow. Uh, we use some clove and cinnamon. Mm. And that beer just mm. took off as well. I mean, you know, yeah. we're sitting there. We've got a core beer that does well. It's favorably reviewed. Uh, it achieves good press. We've won some awards with it. And then we do this keg infusion. You know, literally we're treating it batch by batch. Yeah. Um, and sometimes, in, you know, in like micro batches, you know, we have 10 barrels. But this five barrel, uh, we're going to treat each of these individually kind of thing, uh, especially when we pilot a beer. And they just, they've been taken off. And so, you know, our, in strategy the other day, um, we were talking about, a year ago, we wouldn't have considered that people would like us for our core, but also these wowie zowie beers, as Landon yeah. calls them. But we have to ask ourselves, like right now, are we a wowie zowie brewery? You know, is that what people want from us? And is that what our, our core customer base wants? You know, you, you have to make a beer that you believe in. You have to make a beer that you stand behind, but you're dumb if you don't make a beer that people want to drink. Yeah, and so that's that's where we are. Not you know, of course we've got a light ale. You know that that really pale ale that you're seeing over there. Yeah, um, that's our American light ale, lightest by far. Um, technically, it is an adjunct ale. We use a little bit of corn in there uh, to mm. lighten the body, uh, like a lot of big red, white, and blue brewers might do. Yeah, um, but we still, you know, it, it's also filtered, so you get that. I mean, you can, you know, you could hold it up to the light and set a prism through it, kind of thing. But. Uh, <laughs> But, um, you know, and it's really, it's really drinkable. You know, people really love it, and it's a, it's a very basic beer. You know, we're still yeah. proud of it. We still craft it. It's, it's, a, it's an authentic product of our brewery, and we're proud of it. But, I mean, 
we kind of do think of it as the course like killer as far as when we're <laughs> yeah. selling it to accounts, you know, we're like, hey, you want to be more craft focused, you want to speak to the local nature of Tucson, you want to do business supporting business, we'll pull one of your macro handles because this is going to scratch that itch for a lot of people. Mm, um, there's wow. actually a couple of uh, accounts who who did exactly that, like they used that beer specifically in the place of what used to be their Coors Light handle. And so, <laughs> forgive my inherent bias as I talk about our, our pi- the pioneers of the industry, right guys? Yes. Um, no, so, um, so we have a whole host of beers. Um, I'll talk a little bit about our IPAs in just a second, but, but all in all, still the things that people say. Like I go in and people are like, oh, you're with Borderlands, German chocolate, oh my God. Yeah. And that's, that's where we are right now. So uh, yeah. we're, we're sensitive to that and it, and it plays a big part in what we're doing strategically uh, in the future with our seasonal releases. That's cool, man. That is really cool. What was the first beer you had that made you realize craft beer was going to be a bigger part of your life? Oh, gosh, gosh. Oh, such pressure. <laughs> um, well, I'll tell you, um, I was very fortunate uh, to go to college at the University of Georgia. And okay. uh, they had, uh, it, it's weird, Georgia is so uh, backwards uh, in a lot of ways as far as like craft beer laws and, and self-distribution and uh, on-premise sales. And like they, they have a lot of challenges against them. And so craft beer as a whole was stifled uh, a pretty good bit. But uh, legislatively, they were one of the they were one of the early southern states to be able to to raise the ABV cap. Um, they had a world class beer initiative okay. um, that happened, uh, I think in nineteen ninety six. Um, hmm. Don't quote me on that, but some okay. sometime in that time range. Uh, and so, because the ABV. Uh, Increased all of a sudden you could import beers and you could get those you know big beautiful Trappist Belgians and you could get a lot of like European produced beers and beer from other states that was in higher a higher ABV than you used to be able to get and so um, at that time we also had a really cool like British pub called the Globe and so really the first beer when it was still being made by the or owned by the creator uh, was Hogarden. Mm. Um, so, you know, beautiful, unfiltered, cloudy, wheat beer, Belgian style. Um, and it was just, it's just gorgeous, you know, fruit yeah. or no fruit doesn't matter. You know, it's just a beautiful, quaffable beer. Um, and they, you know, they used to have these like beautiful ceramic kind of tap systems that they would have in their high accounts. And so like, I just, I was so charmed by that. And I was like, this is such a neat thing. Mm. Um, and that was, that was kind of that kind of pulled me in. I think everybody has a Newcastle somewhere in their gateway beer story. Everybody has a Blue Moon, unfortunately, somewhere in their gateway beer story, and, and that's no exception to me. Um, but yeah, Hogarden was the first one that really made me say, like, whoa. Um, a little further down the journey, as I started to experiment a little bit, um, the first beer that I tried and thought to myself, I want to be able to enjoy this beer better than I am right now was yeah. a Sierra Nevada pale ale. Oh. Um, it, wow. At that point, I was like, I don't know what I'm tasting here. I guess this is that hoppy thing that people have been talking about. And yeah. uh, it kind of blew me away. And, I, and I, I finished the beer, but I didn't really feel up to the challenge at that point because, you know, that first time is the worst time with hops. You know, yeah. you kind of got to program the system to be able to handle that. You know, now... You know, you start chasing that hop dragon, and who knows where it leads. You know, you're into you know knee deep, triple IPA, Simtra, you know all that crazy stuff, and wow. uh, and it's really delicious. But that was that's the one that I kind of think of. You know, like mm-hmm. Ken Grossman and his team, they hooked me, man. They hooked me. <laughs> <laughs> that is that is awesome. Is working at a brewery different than you thought it would be? Yes, one hundred percent. Yes. Um, my my craft beer career started um, in my in my situation. Mike and Miles were kickball buddies. I had a volleyball buddy who started a brewery back in North Carolina, and um, right after he had started it, when they were getting everything rolling, I, I you know we, we used to hang out all the time. And he was such a great home brewer, and he was such a savvy business guy. And then all of a sudden, we just didn't see him anymore. And I would run into him every once in a while around town, and he just looked like you know a shell of himself and i'm like 
you're living the dream, man. You started a brewery. And he's like, I've worked more straight 16-hour days than I can count. Jeez. And all I want to do is sleep. And I don't have the time to sleep. And he was just, I mean, it was, I just, I felt so sorry for him while being excited for his success. But, yeah, he just, he was just in dire straits. And I was like, look, man, I was like, I get two days off a week. Let me volunteer one of them to you. I'll do the shitty jobs. You know, it's like, I know you don't need somebody standing around going, this beer also tastes good. Well done. You know, that, that's not a job that really exists. You know, what they need is somebody scrubbing floors and cleaning kegs. And um, at that point uh, in Georgia, a lot of people were doing uh, counter-pressure filled, pre-filled growlers for sale. And that okay. was a way to get a good, a good volume of product in your market. You're taking terrible margin hits like you weren't making much money at all but it was almost you know you almost think of it as sinking it into like a marketing cost just to get your beer out there because if somebody buys a growler then they feel the obligation to finish it you know because you think of a growler like a bottle of beer once you open the cap you need to pour it and so it invites a sense of community and you you make sure other people are there and you're sharing out and you do samples and so it's a good way to get your product out there um, but what it means behind the scenes is a lot of work and a ton of time to get those things clean, sanitized, ready to fill, actually get them full, get the caps on there, get them sealed up, get the labels on there, get them boxed up, get them taped up, get them in the cold storage, get them ready to go out to accounts. And it's, wow. it's ridiculous. And so they, that was their point of need. And so when I first started working, I mean, I wore the, the grubbiest, you know, clothing that I had that was going to be able to just get absolutely sloshed and soaked every day, invested in a good pair of waterproof boots and just started jobbing it, you know, like going in there, like getting there in the morning, working as hard as you can, taking a quick little lunch. Uh, I think there's this romance idea that, you know, well, you work at a brewery, you get to drink this beer all the time. Ain't nobody got time for that. (laughs) Like, I mean, if, if I had a chance to actually like work and drink beer, I probably would, but it is impossible. Like you, you're busting your ass every day. Yeah. Like so, I think that's one of the big dispelled myths. Uh, and every state's got their their laws uh, surrounding like consumption of alcohol in the workplace, and and we, more importantly, are very sensitive to adhering to the laws. But anecdotally, I mean, no, we're not all sitting around quaffing beers and bro punching each other all the time it's just that's not that's not what it is and a lot of people think it's that um and i mean and that that never really has changed even though uh you know the my my time really invested into business acumen and strategy and staffing and and payroll solutions and and job costing and in working through all that stuff, that, that takes up the bulk of my time. But I, st- you know, I still pull a bartending shift here on a busy day because I think it's really important to stay grounded and understand and get the feedback from yeah. your staff, um, from and your and your customers. And and I don't make policy decisions that really are unrealistic or neg- negatively impact staff uh, okay. to an extreme disadvantage because I have to work that same shift. And so it's a great way to stay connected to all aspects of the business and of course it's fun i mean it's a blast getting in front of people talking about our beer handing it to them seeing that that first sip reaction i mean that's constant positive validation and if if you know you got to know yourself and i'm a guy who likes that and so yeah. <laughs> it's really great to be able to get that uh, on tap pun intended uh once a week you know it's it's fantastic um so there, there is a lot of manual labor involved. And, I mean, production staff, you know, it's all hands on deck when we do canning. We bring mobile canning uh, service in here, uh, mm-hmm. Mobile West Canning. They're super awesome guys. Um, so we, we pay basically a, a flat rate per case, and we have the beer, and we get it all set up, and we, we run it through. And it, it, it happens right there in our tap room. We just shove all the tables aside, and we run a hose right out of the, uh, the bright tank wow. and get it done. Um, but also very labor intensive, you know, it's like you're moving, you, you, you know, everyone's losing money the slower that that line runs. Yeah. And so, I mean, cause labor costs for us, labor costs for them, time with the machine, power, electricity, the whole thing. And so you really want it happening as fast as humanly possible. And that's one of those few times that that word, that phrase isn't used hyperbolically, right? Like 
you want it to happen as fast as humanly possible. We are yeah. the limiting factor. That machine can put out beer a lot faster than we can handle it. And so dialing that in means that you are just sweating all day long. You know, we rotate people out. We get pizza and, you know, you, you just jump off the line for a second. And you, you know, cram down a slice <laughs> and you get back on it. And you're, all right, we're ready to go. Glove up, let's do this thing, you know. And so that, that sense of urgency, that slinging beer around, that's something that I think a lot of people don't see, you know, because what are, what are all the hero shots, you know? It's like you have your, your sample and you see the brewer scrutinizing the beer. Yeah, that's what people think it is. Yeah. So, let's talk about trains? Yeah, let's talk about trains. (laughs) (laughs) So, one of the best, worst things about having a business in historic downtown is the train tracks are right behind the building. And so... It's, it's super fun, and it's always a talking point for customers, and some people, you know, I mean, I, I think, you know, there's a chance that you might be a grown-ass man, and you've never seen a train before. We certainly seem to get a lot of those people <laughs> time to time. No, no offense to our customers, but uh, they, they have this sense of awe and reverie around trains going by. And uh, sometimes that's fun to kind of get back in that mindset and be like, yeah, this is a cool really interesting still relevant but very historic aspect of america and the entirety of why tucson really exists in any meaningful ways because we were the most convenient stop coming out from texas and heading on into california and so now the uh, the the interstate reinforces that if you take the 10 uh you know you're coming from el paso and you're coming through Tucson, and then pretty quickly after that, you can branch off and head out to San Diego, or you can head up to Phoenix on its way over to L.A., and that's how the train lines run as well. And so, um, fun fact, uh, right outside, uh, also in line with the the train system and and the reason why Tucson is kind of a hub and its convenience on the southern side, uh, the southwest, um, also most of the major critical function fiber optic cables and data management flows right out there. I'm pointing to our sidewalk, but under that street is the the nexus of critical government important like social structure or uh, not social structure uh, uh, data infrastructure for the United States for the western half of the United States flows right out there, which is super awesome. That's crazy. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's a uh, we only found out about it because they um, they have a construction project um, to make this intersection behind the building a little safer, uh, as well as uh, do some water management. Of course, you know Tucson is a dry place; we're a desert town. But twice a year, uh, we get a lot of rain in a very short amount of time. In the summertime, we actually call yeah. it the monsoon season. So around Fourth of July and spanning for about sixty days after that, we have rain almost every day. Afternoon flash floods. Um, it feels like Florida in the summertime a lot, you it's know, weird. where, yeah, yeah it's, it's weird because, like, we have humidity for, like, the first time all year, and, you know, it's like, uh, the first summer I was here when monsoon started, I was like, ugh, I was like, I thought I left that sweaty kid back in North Carolina, <laughs> what is this stuff, oh, I have to use technical fabrics again, this sucks, you know, and so, but, um, that's so awesome. they were they're doing water management, trying to. We have a lot of flooding, and so there's uh, there's a couple of bridges. Uh, we're bound by a bridge at Sixth Avenue, and uh, on Stone, and uh, both of those have these deep, deep under train bridges, and there's bright red and white uh, height markers, and so it's a flood indicator. And so when it flash floods, sometimes the the water egress system to get it flowing back out mm. uh, doesn't work as well as it should, or you know. St- stormwater and debris get clogged up and so that thing will fill up and inevitably every time like you'll drive past it and there's bright flashing lights stop do not enter you can see the water line up at eight and there'll just be some poor sucker in their car like (laughs) all the way in it uh they actually enacted what they called dumb driver laws in the state that, of Arizona. That's, a, that's actually a thing? It's dumb driver laws. And so, um, I mean, they have a little bit more polished thing, but, but yeah. colloquially, that's what they're referred to. And it, it basically says, like, if it's flooding and you drive through a wash or you drive under a bridge that's filled with water, you have to pay for all the, you know, getting your car, all the emergency services that come out. Like, that's wow. on you. That's crazy. Because you dumb. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, that's the idea behind it. Um <laughs> 
So yeah, oh man, Tucson. I mean, there there is no place on earth like Tucson. It is just this unique town. But anyway, I tell you all that because they're working on getting us out of the floodplain, and and so in order to do that, they're digging this huge underground corridor. They're expanding. Uh, a little bit of a, a freeway system, an okay. overpass, and in order to do that, they had to reroute all those uh, those telecommunications, and so they had like big pits dug up right beside our building. It was real disruptive to business, but in the name of progress, you have to do what you have to do, and we, we were sympathetic. Yeah, and the city was cool; like they gave us a lot of notice, and we worked on parking solutions. Um, but when they had that big hole open, there was a guard 24 hours a day. So it was this really Jeez. bizarre situation where, like, we'd be closing up the bar, you know, middle of the night, go out, and it's like, evening, Sam. Morning, Frank. You know, it's like <laughs> one of those, like, punch card situations. And, like, we just felt so bad because, like, one dude was pulling the absolute bulk of the overnight shifts. And we are just like, That's do you funny. need anything? He's like, I have to just do what I do and bring what I bring. He's like, I can't take outside beverages or anything because like it's a big deal you know and yeah. they were trying to downplay it but like it was it was wild you know that's like, crazy national security yeah <laughs> you know <laughs> that's funny what what are you, what's your favorite um style to brew and then can you describe some of the hops you guys use yes oh man um let's talk about ipas my friend okay. um love a good ipa uh we we really feel like, um, you know, the, the, the New England style, like that, that hazy IPA phenomenon that's happening right now, um, it's really caught on like wildfire. Uh, and so you have, you have the kind of, I guess what you consider the pioneers of that style being Treehouse, uh, Trillium, and a few uh, alchemists. Uh, they're doing some stuff like that uh, up in the New England area, Boston, Vermont. Um, and then uh, it started to pick up actually in the L.A. area a lot as well. And so you have, uh, you have uh, Orange County breweries like Monkish uh, doing a lot. Uh, Del Cielo is a newer brewery, and they're doing some super hazy hop bombs. Hmm. And it's becoming a much, more, a much more embraced style. So the idea behind a hazy IPA is traditionally you have this very clear beer, right? And okay. it has you know, a medium malt backbone. Uh, mm. for, for classic American IPA. And you have some American hops. And so what used to be in the English styles, you had that you know more spicy floral notes with the long, long, clean trailing after bitter uh, gave way to the uh, sharper, more aggressive citrus, pine, and, and resinous notes that you get from the Pacific North, Northwest and the hops that are available there. Yeah. And so that was kind of that original thing. You know, Sierra Nevada Pale Ale, you know, we talked about that, but, you know, they're using Cascade hops, you know, fairly well balanced. Uh, they give uh, this kind of nice, like, almost rose water characteristic to it, very floral hop, but not quite to the degree that you had this, like, classic European-style hops. And then from there... You know, you move into Simcoe and Amarillo and you get some of these, like, you know, sweaty cat pee dank bombs, you know. It's like, you know, the times have changed a lot. And so as you moved out of American IPAs and you move into, like, that West Coast style, um, you're, you're, you're just further pushing down the continuum of how English IPAs morphed into American IPAs. And so at this point now with West Coast style IPAs, uh, you're really going for very assertive uh, hop profiles yeah. Um, you're using uh, you know, m- much more in the overall bill. Uh, you're focusing far less on late edition hops uh, and really moving into like dry hopping territory. Yeah. I said that wrong. So early edition and, and late edition hops like in the boil are becoming less of a thing and dry hopping is more where you're getting these like very, very fresh kneading, very high turnover, volatile compounds that need to be consumed fresh. And so that's, wow. that's kind of where you go. Still a, a very pronounced, strong after bitter. And so, so you're, you're, getting, you're getting all this you know, celebration of the hops and you're subduing the malt character. Mm-hmm. And so all of a sudden, yeah, but still very clear. So, you know, still probably run through a filter or a centrifuge. Like, you're still taking something out. Like, when you filter a beer, you're taking something out of it. Yeah. Like, and that's not something that we really talk about from a marketing perspective because we're talking about what you get, not what we we keep from you, right? Yeah. But um, if you have a really heavily filtered clear beer, uh, you are 
for lack of a better word, sacrificing some element of flavor. It might be, you know, your goal to make that. With our American Light Ale, we absolutely want a very light-bodied, light-tasting beer. And so filtering is naturally a good part of the process. But we've, the, the New England craze really beautifully started to look at IPAs in a different way and say, like, maybe we shouldn't filter this beer. You know, it's like maybe instead of having clarity be this end-all, be-all, you know, metric that we're trying to get to, where seeing through your beer is the most important thing, and maybe it should be about, like, what you're smelling and what you're tasting should be the most important thing. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I say that a little bit exaggeratedly. Every brewer in the country is saying, how can we make the best-tasting beer? But they, they stopped making clarity as big of a thing and started just hyper pushing that envelope and barely using any early edition boil hops at all which contribute most of the bitterness and started going to a lot of very late or even like after boil editions of hops and then again a super aggressive uh, dry hopping profile and so where once upon a time with the traditional assortment like you could use uh, two to three pounds per barrel of hops and that was a really hoppy beer um, all of a sudden, you're kicking up the the number on that, and so for our Tool Avenue IPA that we make in that hazy style, uh, it's over four pounds of hops per barrel. In the Starkiller Base, which is the crazy hazy one that you're seeing right here, um, that's all Galaxy and Citra, and it's uh, just under seven pounds of hops per barrel. So wow. in, yeah, in a 10-barrel batch, we used 44 pounds of Galaxy. Uh, Galaxy being fairly hard to come by, a little expensive right now. It's, it, uh, we're working on contracts, but a lot of folks who use Galaxy have to do kind of a beg, borrow, and steal, or you know, trade or buy uh, in a secondary market because it's just it's tough to source, and everybody wants it because it's so passion fruit aroma, and it's got that kind of nice citrus profile, and it's a very juicy hop. It lends itself to a beer that really, for all intents and purposes, looks like a glass of orange juice. Uh, So it kind of tastes like a glass of orange juice in the best way. Um, Citra is the other hop we use there. You know, Citra, very popular in the last few years and kind of becoming a household name, brand name hop. And so it, it imparts, uh, especially grapefruit is what a lot of people get off of it. So like grapefruit yeah. juice. Ooh. And so that combination of grapefruit and passion fruit is really where we wanted to be. Uh, it, it's a little bit more of a after bitter. Like we tried to construct this uh, with sensitivity towards a hazy style, but we wanted to give it something that still grounded it. And we didn't want it to finish just almost like sweet, like orange juice. We wanted yeah. you to know that you're still drinking an IPA. Um, but even so, with a little bit... You know, with, with this new world and this new tweak where, like, the, the yeast doesn't flock out. And we use some flaked oats and uh, a little bit of, oh, no, it's a sin, wheat flour <laughs> in there. Because you know what? It really works, and it delivers the aroma and the body that we're looking for. So, sorry, every beer blogger who's never made a beer who says that flour is bad, you're wrong. <laughs> so, you know... We're, we're trying to keep it in balance, but at the same time, we're, we're making a, an out-of-balance style on purpose. Yeah. Uh, so the finished product is this really beautiful thing uh, that we launched for our five-year anniversary, and people are absolutely in love with it. The more mainstream version, our Tool Avenue IPA, um, like I said, about four pounds per barrel. Uh, usually it's a rotating hop, so we'll use like Citra, Mosaic, uh, sometimes a little Galaxy. Like this new batch actually has a little bit of Galaxy in it. Uh, but we're using whatever's you know fresh and available and exciting and fits within the profile that we're trying mm. to deliver for the beer, but with just enough variation to keep people interested batch to batch. Yeah. Um, but we find because it's so much less bitter on the finish, um, a lot of people really embrace it in a way that they didn't find IPAs approachable. You know, they didn't have my way early you know Sierra Nevada Pale Ale moment where I'm just like. Uh, I don't know if I can finish this beer. They're like, I don't even like IPAs, but I love this beer, you know? So, um, yeah. So that's, uh, I mean, it's definitely my favorite style right now. I mean, every once in a while, some people come through and they have, like, you know, a can of Treehouse Julius that somebody's mailed to them because they went and picked it up at the brewery. Yeah. And it's just, there's there's nothing like a fresh, juicy, hazy IPA. I'm, yeah. I'm hoping that at some point, Brewers Association potentially will consider or you know even like uh from a beer judging perspective like i would love to see them adopt this into its own unique style 
like let's face it when nitro ipa started to come that that rose and it died almost immediately because you know it's not necessarily a great idea mm-hmm. suppressing hop character and bringing up malt character in an ipa and that's what nitrogen yeah. does so that that fizzled and died pretty quick it was a straight up novelty and everybody recognizes it as such some people are trying to decry this hazy ipa ipa style as a novelty and they're like this is going away you're ruining ipas you know every <laughs> every cynic with an opinion hat you know it's that's what they're saying but the reality is is that this should just be its own unique style like mm-hmm. i would love to see a category just called hazy have it be in the family of ipa still yeah but have it be you know english american west coast hazy or new england you know just do something to give it its place because it's not going away because it's beautiful it's an amazing thing um yeah you know it's it's time as the the highlight will will gradually reduce in time but i think that this beer really has some legs you know this style is around for a while yeah it's definitely um it definitely looks like orange juice and it's really tasty yeah <laughs> glad you like that one's a that so you're trying the the star killer base which is the imperial um it is 8.7 percent and it is possibly the sneakiest 8.7 percent beer i have ever tasted okay yeah so i shouldn't be drinking that fast oh no just, <laughs> just rail it man let's let's see where this podcast takes us here uncharted territory yeah. at the end of that glass so you described some of the beers um that i've sampled can you describe some of the the rest of of what you have on here absolutely so. um one of the beers uh when i was uh before we started when i was telling you a little bit about them uh, that uh you went ooh, is uh we do have a a dark sour offering right ooh. now yeah yeah <laughs> surprise surprise that is a sour yeah so um really fun thing um one of uh one of our bartenders andy uh is actually going to be the head brewer at a brewery starting this year um called harbottle brewing company and they okay. and they really want to focus on making beer good beer first and foremost but um they both uh he and his business partner mike uh figueroa have a really cool kind of sense of what would be fun to do as far as like wild fermentation and some some barrel fermentation to 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 uh give way to some like fun sour beers you know so messing around with different bug cultures and like really getting a, a a unique thing to market and so we talked about doing a collaboration brew uh, with them. Um, they were their hard bottle. They were going to be called Flux, but there was some contestation because there's a wine called Flux, and they couldn't do that. So now they're hard bottle. Um, but we wanted to do a style that really people hadn't seen before, and so uh, they unearthed this recipe for a Kentucky Common. Mm. And the idea behind a Kentucky Common is you would basically make a beer uh, that was ready to be distilled and then aged in whiskey barrels to make whiskey and so the base beer is just a lot of barley and corn and so uh and just enough uh dark specialty malts to give it a little bit of a roasty flavor um yeah you can see like you you can still see that it's like you know dark brown more than it is like it's not opaque at all so it's not like a heavy dark roasted malt bill but there's just a little bit going on to give it a little toastiness yeah so um what we then do is uh, we use the souring culture. Uh, kettle sour is uh, is a way to impart some acidity uh, in a very safe way for a commercial brewing system where you don't have like a full complete setup with a barrel room and your own separate like uh, bright tank and conditioning tank to get everything ready because you know like like most people are, are pretty aware things that make a sour beer good make every other kind of beer shitty and so yeah. <laughs> you really don't want to have uh, a souring uh, bug anywhere else in your system so with the kettle sour what you can do is right when you go to the boil kettle you can put in lactobacillus is a really common one uh, to create some lactic acid and it works mm-hmm. in your boil kettle when you're ready to stop you take measurements you know you kind of get a sense of where your acidity is you take your pH readings uh, you can go on a timetable you know it's all chemistry time and temperature right yeah and so you get it to where you want to go, then you kick on the flame for the boiler. Uh, we use a, uh, we use a, a steam boiler, a steam jacketed boiler for our system. And so you turn that on, and then uh, it heats it up, and it kills all the lactobacillus. And then you can just finish the brewing process as normal without any fear of having, you know, 
that be in your other fermenter where you don't want that lactose strain creating sourness. Yeah. And so then, you know, you finish it out, you pitch a regular yeast strain, you go ahead and ferment it, you move it over to the bright tank, you know, you get it really cold, crash out all the yeast, move it over to the bright tank, uh, clean it up a little bit more, carbonate it, and keg it, and you're good to go. So wow. it's, it's this beautiful thing um, that is allowed a lot of breweries uh, who are you know cramped for space like us to be able to bring sour beers to market. Our Citrana that I was telling you about, that German-style sour beer, is made in, in virtually the same way in that kettle sour tactic uh, technique. And so uh, with, this, uh, with this Kentucky Common, um, Andy and uh, Landon kind of worked to manage that beer together and uh, they, you know, tasted it, kind of, is it ready, is it ready, what do we do, you know, how do we tweak it a little bit, and uh, they brought it to market, and um, it, it was really popular, and it's, it's been a real, real nice success, and a, and a good little teaser of what they can do, um, so as you taste it, yeah, of course that first sip is like, wow, this is a sour beer, Yeah. but, I, like, you're, if you're drinking a fine whiskey, or a really nice sipping tequila, that first sip isn't like a glug, all right, you know, that first sip, like, it's your mouth telling your brain, like, uh, okay, okay, this, <laughs> this is what we're doing now. I'm about to drink whiskey, prepare your body. Yeah. yeah. And sour beers are no exception, you know, that first sip is almost the reset, and then the second sip is where you start to taste the beer. Mm. So with this, when you get to that second sip, uh, we call it Kentucky Sunglasses, some silly name that they came up with i don't really know the origin <laughs> behind that sorry um but um so kentucky common it's it's actually this kind of cool thing that you know the last brewer who seriously made one probably died 50 years ago wow. you know but it's got this really light body and it's got this cool kind of creaminess with it um so it you know it, it just it's a very very drinkable beer that happens to be incredibly sour but um people love it like people came in asking for it by name and uh the only reason you're actually getting to taste it today is because we uh we cellared a little bit like the last remaining of the batch that we had from that collaborate which actually took place middle of last year and we brought it to our fifth anniversary party which we just had on january 21st nice. so. it came at the right time you absolutely <laughs> came at the right time i mean like Man, getting to, uh, you know, we talked about German chocolate uh, noche. You are getting to try the Imperial German chocolate stout, which yeah. is kind of the big brother to that. It's uh, our anniversary beer every year. We make the Pima County stout, mm. which is just a really nice traditional Imperial stout. Very roasty. Um, not too acrid. You know, we still are using some debittered malts. Uh, basically, like, they take the, the husk off the barley before they finish the the roasting process and so you 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 get to have the color and the depth of flavor and you get that roastiness but you don't get that burnt toast kind of acrid edge to it which is which is 100 100% okay in certain styles and that yeah. actually can serve to balance out uh some of the other profiles and in, in how you make it so like if you make like this you know really boozy sweet like Russian Imperial Stout like you need to to challenge the sweetness of that beer with some of those roasted like extreme roasted elements and a little bit wow. of the bitterness that comes from the barley as well as the hops that you're going to add uh, but in this beer it's not necessarily sweet it's fairly dry uh, like you could like you can tell and uh, so we wanted roasty without bitter yeah and so that also means that that Pima County Stout was the perfect base beer to do that German chocolate treatment to it mm -hmm. and uh man people went nuts for that beer <laughs> like when yeah. we had the anniversary party we had a line out the door for nine out of the ten hours that we were open it, it was like nothing I've ever seen I had seven bartenders on and I really wish that I had had eight <laughs> yeah like it was it was too it was too much business for us to handle That's just crazy. kidding fire marshal it was totally fine all day <laughs> no it was we we didn't turn anybody away, but we were close. Let's just yeah. say that. We were very close to having to have somebody at the door and, like, monitor our actual occupancy. And oh, that, that doesn't really happen that often for yeah. us, you know. We do good business, but we don't do earth-shattering business on a day-to-day -day basis out of the tap room. <laughs> awesome. Well, how could people find you, um, see what you guys are doing, or uh, help you guys out in any way? Oh, gosh, great question. Um... 
So we do um, we do a lot of our online presence, uh, social media wise, through Facebook. Um, it's still we feel like a really viable medium for a long time, um, and uh, we have an Instagram. Uh, Borderlands Brewing. Uh, we try to keep everything as simple as possible. It's Borderlands Brewing across all the platforms. Uh, we're on Twitter, but we don't really do too much. I, I still don't yeah. understand Twitter. I'll admit, you know. So if you see any lame tweets from Borderlands, it's probably me, you know, pulling my monkey at a typewriter routine. <laughs> I, I, I'm doing my best. I'm doing my best. Um, but uh, mainly Facebook and Instagram. Uh, our website is kind of undergoing a little bit of a renovation right now, um, as we've had this chance to really reevaluate what the main thrust of our company is over the last 12 to 16 months. Uh, it means that, un- you know, unfortunately in the eyes of some, but necessarily for us, that we're abandoning some of our legacy beers. Yeah. And so those brands are, are still kind of represented on the website. Uh, and so, like, it's it's kind of a hodgepodge, a little bit of a mess right now. So yeah. that, that wouldn't be the primary way that I would send people for information uh, versus something like Facebook where if somebody makes a post or somebody has a question, you know, we're going to be able to answer that probably within six to 24 hours right there on the spot. Um, and then, of course, coming to the tap room uh, is always a fun time. You know, it's, okay. it's going to be, uh, in addition to the the main beers that we have, so the Noche Dulce, Prickly Pear, Tool Avenue, and Citrana, those being the releases that are available year-round, that's also where you get this fun stuff like we're talking about that are going to only be in maybe a handful of draft beer accounts uh, in and around town, uh, but have a much higher likelihood of being here. And so it's a fun it's a fun way to come out. We've got live music on Fridays and Saturday nights. It's awesome. And uh, every Sunday afternoon, we got some really killer local musicians who just have like a Sunday session, like kind of a old school jam kind of thing. Yeah. And um, and so we we have a lot of funs, especially geared towards the weekends. Uh, beer tourists like us when they come into Tucson, mm. uh, we open Monday through Sunday, and on uh, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, being open at noon uh, means that we're one of the the first de facto breweries to open. Tucson being still a, a big small town or a small big town, however you want to say it, like everybody knows each other. And uh, we all the breweries work together and we're very fortunate in our position to be close to several other breweries. So from here, you can take a walking tour, hit Public Brew House, you can hit two craft beer bars, you can hit uh, Pueblo Vida, you can do Thunder Canyon. If you really want to take a hike, you can do Barrio. You can do Crooked Teeth. You can do Littlest Pub. Um, and, and you can do all of those within a walk. And so this kind of new historic downtown walking brewery tour is this really neat way to really get a, a, a strong sense of what Tucson has available and, and get a good sense of identity. There are other uh, cluster areas where several breweries kind of are, are located as well, but um, of course I'm a little partial to the historic downtown <laughs> uh, area myself. Yeah, but yeah, um, yeah. So those are, I mean, those are the those are the best ways. Um, we have some really good partners uh, in Tucson in our in our craft brew uh, craft brewing bars. Okay. Um, so uh, Tap and Bottle uh, is a really cool place that has uh, a ton of uh, package that's available. Like they keep. You know, probably 600 brands or so in cold storage, so you can do on-premise sampling as well as they have like 20 draft lines and a cask, and some cool wines available as well. Uh, Hermanos is a craft beer and wine bar that's always been really good. Uh, we're doing uh, Arizona Beer Week uh, events with Tap and Bottle. We're doing with Hermanos where you can get some really cool small plate food offerings to go mm-hmm. as well, like kind of like nearly like like cuisine level, like nice presentation, like cool yeah. burgers and like beef you know you can do uh, you know anything you want over there um but uh, it's uh it's just really chill and like i don't know i think it's cool because you can go for like a pinkies out kind of experience or you can just hang out with your friends you know it's like it it serves both purposes that's awesome um and then in the middle of town uh the other arizona beer week event that we're doing uh coming up in the second week of february uh is with tucson hop shop and they've also been a really strong supporter of us and they're you know it's great because when we launch some of these special brands we've got the kind of relationship where i can say like hey david and jesse we have imperial german chocolate how much do you want and they'll say all of it i say you can't have all of it but you can have some of it (laughs) (laughs) no but um but yeah so uh that those are also really really good places to go uh where more likely than not you're probably going to find a borderlands offering available on draft uh as well as being able to get a sense of the tucson brewing community as well okay cool man well thanks for being on the low-key podcast and letting me try 
all of these fantastic beers. No, thanks I mean, for they're, coming. They're so they're really good, especially the German chocolate. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> that at home, you know. That, woo, woo. Welcome that, to the hype train, yeah. brother. <laughs> yeah, I like the sour too, and the amber ale was really good, and some of the stouts, um, hazy, the hazy IPA. That's been a, that's oh. been a, a big a big player in our portfolio right now. That that yeah. Tool Avenue Hazy IPA is is really catching on. Yeah, we're we're Tucson's ready for it. There are a few people making hazies now in this area, and uh, I'm I'm very glad because it's it's something that I think I think sets us apart from other you know smaller smaller city communities where they just don't have any kind of you know geographical beer brand identity yeah i think tucson has a a, a good feel a, a good sense of beer like you can you can see commonalities that are inherent across 16 different brewing platforms which is really neat that's awesome well thanks again for being on the low-key podcast and hey thanks for having me really well, enjoyed it well uh i'll probably be hanging around here maybe later tonight but uh sweet we'll see you later cheers Hey guys, and thanks again for listening to the Low Key Podcast. want to thank Adam Ledford from Borderlands Brewing for being on the Low Key Podcast. Now, if you're ever in the Tucson area, go check out Borderlands Brewing and go drink a brewski. And also check out all their social media outlets and their website to see what they're doing. Now, if you listen to the Low Key Podcast and aren't a subscriber, subscribe to us on iTunes. And if you are a subscriber and an avid listener, go rate us on iTunes and go give us some feedback on on iTunes. Also, go follow us on Instagram and go like our Facebook page to see what we're doing and what giveaways we may be doing. So guys, thanks again for listening to the Low Key Podcast. It's nice, it's easy, it's low key. Thanks for listening.